I did some really fun soundboard stuff on Sunday, Mike. Yeah? What'd you do? It was it was uh a little well, I shouldn't say a little. It's very like soundboard audio engineer-ish. So I'm not gonna explain the details, but I just know that it was super fun for me to play with it. But it was one of those things that I don't think I would have gone through the depth and the detail in learning the tricks I was using on Sunday had it not been for this really cool cohort that you put together, this, <laughs> this like life theme thing that you do, because I learned a lot about myself and how I really love doing like big audio events through the process of going through that life theme cohort and have kind of made that a big part of like some of my personal mission. But that's stuff that I didn't really know and didn't really know that I wanted to focus on until I went through your cohort. And you have another one of these coming up soon that I think people should join. So I'm doing some (laughs) of your promo for you because I love this thing. I absolutely love it. And I know that there's going to be a lot of this. I'm not going to be able to join, but I'm definitely going to try to where I can. Um, So yeah, tell us about this thing because this is an amazing thing that I think people should join hands down. Awesome. Well... Thank you for the uh, the kind words, and uh, we'll take you whatever sessions you can attend. Uh, there was somebody else who joined the the first one and uh, is coming back for the second one, but was disappointed they weren't going to be able to attend either. Just a couple of sessions here or there, and I said that is no problem. It's essentially a six week cohort is the best word. If you don't know what a cohort is, it's basically like a group coaching sort of a curriculum where you go through the material together. And the reason this is so great for the life theme stuff is we're talking about a life theme, which is like a personal mission statement. But when you share that, it's very vulnerable, but it's a very safe space and everyone is there for the same reason. So what ends up happening is you get people who are sharing things that feel very personal to them. And then when they get positive feedback from the group, it is kind of on one level uh, verification, but also it is very inspiring. Like you hear other people sharing their life themes and the things that resonate with them. And uh, it inspires new ideas and and vision basically for for yourself. And uh, I love this because you get done, you have your, your life theme, which is a one sentence personal mission statement that brings motivation and clarity to everything that you do. So it's not the type of thing where you may be going into it thinking like, I'm going to get clarity and then I'm going to realize that my job sucks and I need to quit it and go do something else. I mean, I guess maybe that could happen, I guess. <laughs> but uh, more likely what will happen is that you'll just kind of crystallize and codify the reasons why you're doing the things that you're doing and it'll be more meaningful. So either way, like it's a very positive, uh, ex- experience and, uh, nothing but good comes from that, that clarity, because the truth is that we've got limited time here on, on planet earth. And, uh, I think everyone, regardless of your religious background wants to make the most of the time that they have available to them. And this is the best way to, to do that. When you have the clarity that comes from a life theme, then it's, it becomes easy to say no to the things that aren't really the right things because you have the clarity to realize that that really doesn't connect. And so it's six weeks. The first week is the kickoff call. And we kind of talk about what are the the moments when you really came alive. And then we talk about, you know, dreaming big and identifying our core values and distilling that all down, painting a picture of the type of life that we want to live. And uh, the sixth week, we added that this time, last time we did five, 
Um, but we did an impromptu six week where we kind of shared our, our life themes at the end. And that went really, really well. So we're making it six weeks this time kicks off uh, Monday. So as you hear this, if you hear it the day it, can't, it comes out, there's only a couple days left to sign up for this, but you can go to uh, faithbasedproductivity.com slash life theme to get all of the details and to, uh, to sign up. Uh, it's not just me. My wife, Rachel does this with me. And some of the feedback that we got last time was we want to hear from Rachel more. Uh, so we're going to do it more 50, 50. She's going to be more involved and, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be awesome. Uh, we really enjoy doing this and looking forward to, uh, to doing it again. We got a bunch of people signed up already, so we'll have a, a pretty good group. Uh, if you want to join us, then it is $197. Um, there is a 50% or $50 coupon for bookworm listeners. Just use the code bookworm at, at checkout. And, uh, yeah, we'd love to have you join us. I will say that one of the things I absolutely loved about the way this is set up is that you're sharing like your values and your missions and like the things that made you come alive at different points uh, in the community that comes along with this. And I was fascinated by one reading what other people would share about their own, like these were the unique moments in my life, but also people would chime in and say, well, I, I noticed you had this theme across your events that you didn't point out. Have you ever thought about that? It's like, and I know that whenever people did that with some of the stuff I shared, it just kind of made me pause. Like I've never connected those dots before. So there is a little bit of like borderline group therapy of sorts that goes on with this. So I, I was absolutely fascinated with it. So it's one I absolutely can wholeheartedly recommend. So please take Mike up on his discount and go join in on this. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. So we've got quite a bit of follow-up here, Mike. You significantly more so than myself. Uh, we should start in on this. Uh, <laughs> I guess I'll go first here because i got a couple of them. Uh, one that I know you were a little bit fascinated by was to evaluate my defaults with Becky, my wife. And uh, we had a date night the night we had recorded this and kind of worked through, and this kind of followed into my other one. I didn't intend for those two to be almost I like, connected action items, but they ended up being that way, uh, was to create a list of personal rules for automating decisions. So those two, what happened was I was working through the process like, okay, what are my defaults? Like what happens when somebody brings me a project and says, hey, we should do this? Well, my gut reaction is, yeah, absolutely. I'll help out wherever I can. And this is not a surprise for anybody who's listened to me for more than 2.3 seconds. So I <laughs> jump in very quickly. Uh, so that particular default being aware of that then led to the development of a rule for automating decisions uh, so that that's why I say they were a little bit connected so working through that with her meant that I quickly came to the it's either a no or a let me process this it's not even a let me think about it it's just a let me process this and having that simple reaction then means that I can put a little bit of distance between the decision being made and some processing time to determine if it's the right decision to be made. So it is very helpful in that. That's probably the biggest of them. There's a few other like very personal ones that I found out that I didn't realize I had uh, that I worked through with her as well. But that's probably the biggest one, I think. Uh, and it's one that I've like tried to do in the past, but I don't think I've ever attempted to pull that one off with Becky's support behind it. So there's a little bit of a you know, spouse 
accountability with that, which puts a lot more weight behind it. So yeah, I'm kind of combining those into one at this point, just because I realize, huh, those are very connected without me realizing it. <laughs> cool. That was an interesting experiment to to talk through that. Awesome. All right, you have you have a list here. Hit me. I do. Um, so the first one, ask myself, will this make the future easier or harder? Um, I've started to ask this, but I, this is one of those conceptual ones that is just kind of like another data point to consider when making decisions. And the last couple weeks have actually been pretty busy for me. We were traveling to Tennessee for my son Toby's uh, national soccer tournament. And then uh, last week I was at a men's ministry conference in, in Dallas. So I haven't had a whole lot of opportunity to practice this yet, which almost feels like I haven't really done it, but I don't think that's accurate. I think it is kind of shaping my thinking about the decisions that I, I've been making, but it, there just haven't been a whole lot of decisions to be made. Um, the other one is ask others, is this the best that you can do? I was very specific with this. I want to start using this with my kids. And again, haven't had a whole lot of opportunity to emphasize this, but this is definitely sticking. And this is definitely one of those things that I want to instill in my kids is this whole spirit of excellence. So I'm pretty confident that this one is going to uh, stick, even if it's not exactly worded that same way. Um, it's definitely, uh, definitely something that, that resonates with me and I'm going to, going to keep working with that. Now the building my personal board of directors, I did this, uh, I've got a few names. I don't have a bunch of names. Now, what was interesting about this exercise was that you could, he says you could pick people who are living or, uh, deceased. And I think a lot of the people on here are deceased, maybe half and half. Um, and I did not, uh, <laughs> add these people with the specific like director of habits for James Clear, whatever, because that's kind of what I was thinking I was going to do before we read today's book. And there's a whole section in here about boards and it felt, I don't know, my, my picture of what a board was and the titles that go along with it kind of changed, I feel like. So um, I, I grabbed a list of six people, which I think I'll add to this over time, but these are the six that uh, really stuck with me. And I didn't say this is why, like the per the reason I'm putting this this person here. Now you may be able to identify that with uh, the, some of these names, but I'll just read the names. So first one is John Maxwell. He's the leadership guy. And we've read uh, the 21 Laws of Leadership. And uh, I've read a lot of John Maxwell books. I just really like his style. It's been very impactful. So um, he's somebody that I would love to have on my board of directors. Uh, the next one is Jim Rohn, who he has passed away, but of all the self-help business type stuff that I have read, all the advice that I have heard, I like his tone the best. It resonates the most. It feels the most authentic. I feel like there's a current generation of people in this space that take it too far. Like Tony Robbins was his protege. And I feel like there's some stuff. I don't know Tony Robbins. Uh, specifically. So uh, I just know that his, his tone is a little over the top for me, but Jim Rohn feels like a good, good balance. Uh, there is uh, someone who is kind of a, a famous historical Christian author called Ian Bounds is kind of like the prayer guy. 
So he's on there. Dale Carnegie is on there. He's kind of like a master communicator. Uh, I would love to have someone who can help me develop my communication skills. There's a guy, Ed Cole, the men's ministry conference that I was just at is actually associated with him. It's called Christian Men's Network. And he's passed away. His son, Paul, is running it now. But he wrote this series of of books, this men's curriculum that um, people have basically... Uh, he's kind of the father of the men's ministry movement. The Promise Keepers guy was like a disciple of his and a bunch of famous people, you know, on the back book cover, like Reggie White and Chuck Norris and Ted DiBiase, you know, like Ed, Ed Cole's ministry changed my life sort of a thing. So he, his books are very direct. Uh, there's a lot of, a lot of good wisdom I feel in those. And then related to that, Mike Murdoch is another one. He's kind of the wisdom guy. Uh, so that's my board of directors and it's still a work in progress, but this was a really cool <laughs> exercise to do. It sounds fascinating. Like that, that process of like choosing and especially when you're like trying to limit it to a few people, like yep. if you're not, if you're not willing to say this is 30 people deep. Like when you're trying to get like a core small group of people, this is a challenge. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then the other ones that I've got here, uh, create a list of personal rules for automating decisions. I have not finished this. Uh, I am thinking about this. There was actually a, uh, do you listen to the Cal Newport podcast at all? I binge listen to it on occasion. I'm a little bit behind on it right now, but I have like caught up with it up until maybe about three months ago. Okay. So I'm probably due for a cow binge. Yeah, so I I tend to be wary of podcasts like this, especially ones that are podcasts and video. But Cal's I I really like. And um he talked a little bit in there in a recent episode about having like I forget how he worded it. I have it written down in in drafts somewhere. But it's basically like the the systems that you have for how you run your life. So you've got a master document and in there, there's a link to task management. And these are the systems that you follow for task management. And this is the, the way that you do your morning routines and basically documenting like all of the individual systems in your life. And I feel like that's a really cool idea. And I intend to to build that out over time. I just have like a really rough bare bones version of it, just kind of like placeholders at the moment. But I feel like that is more beneficial than creating just this list of rules. It's basically the same thing, but they're categorized and they're associated with the appropriate systems. So that's what that's going to look like. And I uh, kind of started it, but got a lot more work to do. And then start a decision journal where I write what I was thinking. Um, I have this kind of built into my daily notes template, but I haven't really had a chance to use this yet. Again, been traveling. And so just trying to keep my head above water with, uh, the, the stuff that I have to do, like getting the YouTube videos out and sending the newsletters, recording the podcast, things like that. Haven't been able to think strategically and really make <laughs> important decisions. Uh, but that should be, be changing here in a, in a couple of weeks. And so, uh, I'm, think that I'm going to just continue to document these where I have these and not put pressure on myself to have one every week or anything like that. And just see, uh, by the time I do my next personal retreat, you know, maybe I've got a couple of these, maybe I've got a dozen of them and just think through the decisions that I, I made and, and document what I was, was thinking there. 
Um, so I have the space for it, but haven't practiced it yet. Fair enough. Yeah, I know that uh, Cal has, I forget what he calls it, but he tends to use like some of the businessy terms like standard operating procedures and my core principles. Like he uses some of those terms for his like core documents that he uses to guide decisions and what he does every day and missions and such. So like I know he does use those quite a bit for it. And I think if I'm not wrong, he literally does this in like Microsoft Word. Like this is just Word docs, I think. Mm. Maybe it's not Word docs, but it's just like it's probably yeah. honestly, it's probably it's plain text files. Like it's just very basic. I think it is plain text, yeah. It's not anything fancy whatsoever. So it's not like he's you know, drawing arrows and putting big, you know, colored fonts and styled fonts. It's just basic text is all it is. Yep. Exactly. That's that's kind of his his thing. Is you don't need the fancy tools for this. You just got to think about the right things. I'm very much looking forward to his next book, Slow Productivity. I feel like yes. that's going to be perfect for for Bookworm. I've got it pre-ordered. Yep. I think it comes out in March or something. But okay, yeah, I knew that it was like almost done. Maybe it is done done now. Uh, but it's yeah, it's pending. Very close. Oh, one other thing that uh, is pretty cool that happened. Um, I'm not sure if you're on Twitter or X much these days, but uh, yeah. Shane Parrish listened to it? the last episode. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. He, uh, well, he job, replied and, and he made a comment about the uh, aligning the charts. He addressed the two comments that we made. You know, okay. So I think yours was aligning the charts and mine was the, the chapter numbering. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yep. So that was, right, that was cool. Maybe this. he just ran it through chat GPT. I don't know. But I, I choose to think that Shane Parrish listens to Bookworm. So thanks, Shane. <laughs> That's really cool. All right. Well, let's jump into today's book because I feel like there's a lot to cover here. And hopefully we can cover it concisely. But today's book is Build by Tony Fidel. And the subtitle on this, An Unorthodox Guide to Making Things Worth Making. And on the onset, I picked this a lot because I picked this primarily because I knew that like you're in the middle of building like your own business. I'm in the middle of like building some of my own mission of sorts. And I, I don't really have an interest in like building a product per se, but Tony Fidel is the guy that you probably want to listen to if you are going to attempt to build a product just because of the street cred that he has from his experience, uh, which is building um, some fairly well-known products uh, and leading the teams behind, uh, have you ever heard of the iPod or the <laughs> iPhone or the Nest thermostats? If you've ever heard of these products, Tony Fidel is somebody that uh, you... Uh, owe <laughs> those two like you owe a lot to him for those products and uh so so hearing his story here which there's a lot of in this book and seeing what his process was like for making those come about and what he learned in the process uh is super interesting uh, i think i got a lot more detail into that process in this book than i was expecting uh but i think that's okay what were your initial thoughts on it mike my initial thoughts were, you jerk, you picked a 400-page book during the two weeks that I'm going to be out of town. <laughs> I did. 
I did not know this. No. And I see this is this and you were listening to me pick a book before we started recording. <laughs> it's like it is not in like length of book is not something I look at whenever I'm choosing these books. But yeah, that's yes. Okay. First first choice back after coming back to the podcast and I throw this four hundred page monster at Mike when he's gonna be gone. I think I, I've done that to you before too. So <laughs> it all evens out. Um I was interested in the the book, but I expected it to be very startup heavy. And uh, there is obviously a lot of elements of that, but I don't think it's quite as specific as I was thinking when I first picked it up. I mean, honestly, I thought that there was not going to be a lot for you and I to glean from this because of the very specific startup experience that he has had with the products that you mentioned. Um, but I, I feel, I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to get right to style and rating, I guess, but I, I feel like it was a lot more approachable and a lot more generalizable than I anticipated at, at first. And uh, it's very fascinating. It's huge. It's broken down into several different sections, which are neatly organized, I feel. And there's a lot of really cool details that he uh, he adds here um, he also does a pretty amazing job of not going too deep on a lot of the stories which is another thing that i was anticipating is like okay we're gonna hear behind the scenes all the details of some specific events um, and he does give you some of that stuff but it was very very uh i don't know i felt more like a general business productivity type book than I uh, had anticipated. And I feel like that was a, a pleasant surprise. Yeah, I would agree with that because there was a lot of potential for like dragging these stories out and giving us gobs of detail that was unnecessary, which honestly was a little bit of a concern when I started getting into the introduction to kind of keep moving here. But when I got into the introduction and he started to give us some of his background and his story, which he lays out in that introduction, there's like a whole timeline for his career and his work journey all the way up till now. Uh, and I'll summarize that here briefly, but because he had all of that, it, it's very easy to see that this could be almost a memoir where it's showing us his entire journey and he's just going to tell us his story. And he does do that, but that's like mixed in amongst the lessons. Uh, he starts off more story heavy and ends less story heavy. I don't know if you caught that or not, but like part one, uh, again, we'll get to that. He's telling a lot more of his story to show how unconventional it is. And then by the time he's done, it's more, okay, here's how this works. And this how like he's generalizing a lot more at that point. So it seems like as the book goes on, he's less and less on his, his background. I kind of appreciated that, honestly. It, it mm -hmm. was kind of a cool, cool way to do it. Uh, his his story to kind of give you a, a very brief overview. Uh, he he got started selling eggs in third grade, like that. That was kind of his very beginning into the entrepreneur world. He got into programming uh, when he was in middle school. He fell in love with some of the Apple products early on he got into building uh some software and such but anyway he he joined a company called general magic where he was learning to build hardware there 
uh, ended up being a lead software and hardware engineer. And that company and their product failed. He went to work for Philips. Uh, they had a success, but couldn't sell enough. <laughs> so then that failed. Uh, he went for work for a company called Real Networks, making a digital music player. Uh, that did not pan out. He started to try to make his own. That didn't last for long, and then he ended up at Apple. And uh, that was when he had his first like critical success, as he calls it, making the iPod. He then stepped into the iPhone, realized he was spending too much time at work, decided to step away, and then he started Nest Labs, where they started the Nest Thermostat. That grew up until the point it was sold to uh, Google, where he quit. And then after that, he started a group called Build Collective, where he now advises and invests uh, in other startups full-time. So it's been quite a journey for him, and I think we'll get into some more of that detail as we get into it. But uh, it, it to me, it sounds very much like the standard you know, tech person in Silicon Valley this didn't work. That did work. And here's where I am. Like, I feel like that's <laughs> been his journey. Yeah. Which is kind of terrifying to me. Uh, I don't know. Maybe my situation isn't all that different. I left <laughs> a stable job to start my own thing, but I don't know. Like some of the stories he, he tells, I just like, that's crazy. <laughs> Um, so at the beginning here, I guess, as it pertains to what I think of this book, I feel like it makes it a little bit hard to relate to him. Uh, it's also kind of interesting though. I, I like that he added it here and I also like that it doesn't dominate the rest of the, the book. Um, what this does is it does show his biases and there are a couple things that he talks about later on in the book when he's talking about like company structure and values and stuff like that where I've got a little bit of a different <laughs> perspective than, than he does. Um, but I can see how he arrives at the conclusions that he arrives at because he shares this in the beginning. So if we jump into part one, which, by the way, did you notice the chapter numbering? I did. Yep. Very much <laughs> like uh, clear thinking. <laughs> so, so this, Shane, you're yeah. probably not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> So this follows the exact same process. We have chapter 1.1, 1.2, 1 1.3, 1.4 that are all in part one. Uh, and part two follows 2.1, 2.2, 2.3, so on and so forth for the six parts and then a conclusion at the end. So part one is build yourself. These are all going to have a build theme and until we get to the last one anyway. So build yourself. And this is where, you know, he's he's telling some of the story of his background first. And that's where I was saying, like, he starts very story heavy at the beginning. So he's telling us the story of how he essentially got to where he was working on hardware in the tech sector and how it just doesn't work. Like, it, he just has a whole bunch of failures. And then he's like, he thought he was on the right path, but he was at the wrong level, wasn't thinking about it holistically. And it ultimately would fail and he would move on to the next place. And that was where he was learning how to be an adult effectively. That's where like the chapter titles here, adulthood, get a job, heroes, don't only look down. Uh, but he talks about getting a job, 
He's moving from job to job and then has ended up, ended up working with and for some people that he really saw as his heroes. Uh, but it, it is really just his story of those first few companies that he was a part of. There's obviously some more stuff mixed in. One of the things that I absolutely love, so this is like the book part itself, right? So he's jumping in in part one, and the very first line of the book is, I tried to build the iPhone twice. <laughs> that's that's a really, for a business book, that's a really great hook at the beginning of this. So it's yep. pretty stellar. But yeah, I like the way he started this with just kind of giving us his background because then it builds like some of the credibility that you need to trust him once you get into these later parts. Yeah, and this is kind of where already my assumptions about this book are being challenged. Like the heroes part specifically, I really like that section. And uh, he says that any job working with your heroes is a good job. And obviously that is very much in line with the whole startup world. But he shares some advice here that I feel like is applicable to just about anybody anywhere. Like one of the things that he mentions in that chapter specifically is to follow your heroes and contribute something smart. And he didn't specifically say it this way, but if he were to have like written a prescription for how Mike Schmitz should apply this, it would be follow people that you look up to on social media and then join the conversation and add value where appropriate. And that'll open up opportunities to work with them, which has basically been my life story. <laughs> so I could d definitely see how that could be applied to, to my situation. And um, it's one of those things that isn't blatantly obvious. Uh, I feel like we're getting into some of the deep stuff here and it's only the first section and the whole like title for the section of build yourself. Obviously that kind of resonates. We're very much, uh, invested in personal development, self-development, whatever, just like taking responsibility for your situation and not just hoping that someday at some point the skies are going to open and you're going to find yourself in a good situation. You got to develop your skills. You got to have a, an eye towards excellence. You got to have resilience, um, to stick with it when other people are, are going to quit. And so, uh, that's kind of what he's talking about here, but it's uh, a different perspective than pretty much every other book in this space that we have, uh, read so far. And, and I liked it. Yeah. I, I like this whole section around basically learning how to be an employee of sorts, because he ends this with, so the last chapter of it is don't only look down. And what he means by that is just, it's very easy when you're heads down on a project to just focus on your one little piece that you're a part of, instead of like looking up to see how your work fits into the broader picture that your company and your, or your team is working on. That's what he's getting at here. And that's, that's a very big lesson I know for a lot of people, including myself, where it, it's easy to get focused on your thing, but if your thing doesn't fit the broader narrative of what the company is trying to do, that project, whatever you're working on, is likely to be cut. I love the story they were talking about, like this dancing lemon uh, gif that they had <laughs> spent that. a lot of time working on for their product. And they mentioned he mentioned it to, or he was in a conversation with an upper management person. I forget the details around this one. But she effectively said, 
yeah, that's really cool, but what are we going to sell? Like, that's cool. <laughs> it's a fun little toy, but people aren't going to buy our expensive product for a dancing lemon. Like, that That doesn't make sense. Oh, How are we actually going to sell this? I just made this connection. I think that dancing lemon is on the inside cover of the book. Do you have your book with you? Yes. Yeah, it is. Absolutely is. It's, <laughs> let's see if I can... I can Get this to where you can see it. I don't. I know we don't have the video, but yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there it is. Dancing yep. lemon. Do fail learn <laughs> is mixed in and amongst this dancing lemon. Yes, but I think that was like his big, his big turning point, right? Where he realized, hey, it's a lot of work to like, and a lot of technical difficulties behind making this GIF work. At least at the time, I forget the exact time period. Maybe the eighties. Uh, where he was trying to get this to work. So the technology just wasn't there for this type of thing. So they were making it, which is awesome. Like it's groundbreaking, right? But you're you're not going to sell products with this fancy little, you know, doohickey that doesn't really <laughs> accomplish or solve a problem. And that's what this upper management person was trying to get across. Like that's really cool, but we had a pro- we had to sell a product. Like marketing and sales is going to really struggle with this fun thing that you guys spent how many weeks trying to make when you could have been solving these other problems that we're still under the gun on. And that that type of misdirection, if you will, for where they were spending their time and their energy is a big part of why that group did not succeed. They were yep. focused on the wrong things. Which, I mean, just in that one story, there's a whole bunch of lessons to be gleaned there. I'm not sure if these are obvious to other people or just that's where I went because of all the business books that I've read. But I immediately was thinking about the different teams and organizations that I've worked with over the years where they've done the exact same thing. They've they've found something to do, but it wasn't the most important thing for the business. And that was literally my job as an integrator was to kind of get people to focus on the most important thing for the business, <laughs> give everybody yep. a number. And like, that's what you are tracking. That's what you are building against. And so it was really obvious to me, like that conversation obviously never <laughs> happened at that point anyways, with the, the team that he was a, a part of. Um, and I don't know, I just really like those, those stories, those examples, not that I'm like looking at it and, Oh, look at all the mistakes that that they made. But I just feel like those stories make the principles that I like to read about in these business books feel more human and, and more real. Uh, it, when you hear about other ways that people are encountering this stuff and the challenges that they're, they're facing, uh, it makes you feel better about going through it yourself, I guess. <laughs> Cause it's like, Oh, I'm not alone. Other people are dealing with the same thing. <laughs> I think that that particular turning point, like when he had that revelation, that's like the perfect, like, and again, he's really good with segues on this too. So he steps into part two after that part uh, or after that section in that chapter, uh, which is build your career. And I, I had a little bit of trouble at first connecting his chapters to why why he's talking about building your career because he's talking about things like management and when to quit, dealing with difficult people, uh, using data versus opinion. Like these are all the things that he's referring to in this part. And although 
like on the backside, I, it totally makes sense because those are all like the soft skills of sorts that come alongside your career building process as opposed to like how do you actually manage promotions and how do you get to the right level of the organization that you want to be in, which is where my brain went when it's when he said build your career. In my head, I was thinking like, okay, how did he level up to where he needed to to be? But that wasn't it at all. Really, it was he was building himself in the first part. He learned that his little tiny area was just one piece of a bigger puzzle and you needed to step back and see the whole puzzle in order to understand the scheme of what you're working on. And that fascinated him. So then he just started to try to learn those other skills and understand how the engineering side fit into the broader company. Uh, so he started to increase his skill set uh, through these other pieces. Uh, one thing that I think is interesting is one of these chapters is talking about management, and he, he makes the comment that management is there to help people succeed. And so much of what the stereotype is around management and even some of the managers that I've worked with and had in the past definitely have this view that it's their job to micromanage and not just success manage. <laughs> and I really wish that was not the stereotype because I feel like if people were to follow at least his advice here, the perception of what a manager does and who they are would be very, very different in the broader public's eye. Yeah, he says as a manager, it's your responsibility to make sure that people can become the best version of themselves. And I love that term, the best version of yourself. I've used that myself several times. Um, unfortunately, I feel that's not what most managers, that's not their motivation. <laughs> no. So, yeah. Um, but there is, I mean, that whole section on managing, uh, there's some good stuff in there. Uh, I got a little bit depressed in that that section because what he's advocating for, I 100% agree with, but that's not not most people's reality. I did love the data versus opinion section, though. Mm, yeah. Because he, he, he talks about how when you are, um, when you're trying to make decisions, that's the whole idea behind data versus opinion. You can make a data-driven decision or you can just go with your gut. And he talks about how every decision really has elements of data and opinion. And if a product is really new, there's nothing to compare it to, nothing to test against. Now, that is a dangerous statement right there because you can use that as justification for, oh, just trust me, this is the right thing to do. And I've seen people do that. If you're not the CEO, you really shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> and if you are the CEO, you got to be careful when you do that because um, you got to play by the same rules the team does. Otherwise, they're like, oh, what do we actually do? Like, what's the protocol here? But um, I like the the detail in here that really uh, I, I liked was he mentions that storytelling is important. There's a whole big section on storytelling later, but storytelling is how you get people to make a leap with something new. I feel like that is pretty great advice and it doesn't have to just apply to Silicon Valley startups. If you're trying to get people on board and get them to go along with you in a decision or course of action. I think storytelling is one of those things that everybody should look to get good at. And it's one of, I think it's also one of those things that you typically are like, well, I just, you know, some people are great storytellers and that's not just me, but you have the ability to, to develop that skill. I mean, Toastmasters is, is one thing that can help you with that. I feel, 
so I would encourage everyone to try to become a, a better storyteller. And he gives a really great example here of why that skill can be beneficial and maybe not in the domain that you initially think. Yeah, it, it, this is, and again, this is going to start stepping into the next part, but you, you start the process of storytelling, even in the process of figuring out what you're selling. Like yep. The storytelling isn't only the sales side of it and the marketing side of it. Yeah. Well, real real quick before we before we go to part three, because there's one other thing that I feel like I need to sure. address here in the I quit section because <laughs> I just went through this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he says, most people know in their gut when they should quit and they spend months or years talking themselves out of it. Uh, I liked reading this because when I quit, it felt a little bit like a pretty quick decision. It wasn't something that I was thinking about for months or years. And I kind of have been thinking the last six months that maybe I quit too soon. And I have rationalized uh, that by, I, I don't think I really did, um, but integrity and character are important to me. And I knew that if I followed the, the, the traditional advice, it would be build your side thing, you know, on the side. And then when that has traction, then you make the leap, but I couldn't fulfill that role knowing that I couldn't be a hundred percent in it. So basically once I realized that I made the decision and and uh, made the leap. But if I was following traditional advice, I feel like I would probably still be there, still building Obsidian University on the side and getting that thing as big as I can before I could just like take a step instead of making a leap. Um, so when he's saying here, you know, when you know that it's time to move on, you should move on. I, I felt validated a little bit. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Cause he does talk about how and he has a series, I don't have it in front of me, but he has a series of things that you need to go through before you quit, mm -hmm. which was some like ignore it and, you know, kill them with kindness, like some of those things. And uh, he, he ends up like, once you've tried everything, that's the time to quit. But yeah, there's not really a, he doesn't even lay out a process for like your own financial security in the midst of that. He just is going down the path of that job in itself. He's not really talking about doing things on the side. Yeah, well, when you invent the iPod and the iPhone, you probably don't need to worry about that. <laughs> yes, correct, 100%. So that that part was in the back of my head. I was like, okay, well, you can't just, you know, you can, but there's like some needs and requirements that you have to have built up. If you're able to do like what you're in the middle of, then sure, go for it. If you're not, this is probably a bad move and doing a little bit of the checkout from the job and doing your side gig stuff is okay. Uh, if you're not willing to do that from an integrity stance, it's fine. But you got to hustle if yep. you're going to make it that way. So turns yes. out. <laughs> hustle, hustle. Okay, so back to the product thing. Uh, the the sales piece and the storytelling piece. Uh, in part three, he talks about build your product. And some of what I was getting at before we had a deviation there was just that the storytelling piece, uh, and he gets into some of the nest uh, conversation here where he he knew that trying to make a smart thermostat 
would probably catch some people off guard and like, why on earth would you ever do this? But the marketing teams went through the process of making it a big deal of talking about the why behind a Nest thermostat, not just the what. So -hmm. because the marketing and sales teams were so big on the why being a big, like a fundamental piece of their goals, that meant that the product had to fit that story as well. So the form factor, the packaging, all of that became a big part of the story that the marketing teams were were working on. So it wasn't just the story behind the product and the problem you're trying to solve. It was also the how do we help people understand that this is a problem that needs to be solved and here's how it can make your life easier. So it, it had a very big impact, like the storytelling piece is why it's one of the first things he starts off with here in, in part three. Yeah. So the, the storytelling stuff, uh, obviously I, I like this. Um, and he mentions kind of before that, the making the intangible tangible, that your product isn't just the product, it's the whole user experience. So there's gotta be a story for that whole thing. Uh, one thing in this why storytelling part that I singled out was a great analogy allows a customer to instantly grasp a difficult feature and then describe the feature to others. And that's interesting because I feel like there's some very specific nuance to this being good advice or bad advice. (laughs) The good advice, I mean, from a product perspective, and as he's talking about it here, helping them understand a feature makes sense. But I've also heard the advice, and this I agree with, that you should not describe your product as something for X, you know, like, I don't know, Netflix for whatever. The minute that you have to define your product as something else that people understand, you, there's there they put you in the drawer, they identify you as this, and you're really not, you lose the potential to be a truly disruptive revolutionary idea or product when you position yourself that way. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think what he's talking about is describing what the product does, the features. And in that case, I do think you need something to help people cross the the divide because the the thing that is difficult to to reconcile as somebody who makes a product is the customer wants this, but what they really need is is that. There's kind of the famous quote by Henry Ford, if I gave the customers what they want, they would have faster carriages. And I feel like even, uh, it, it obviously has experience with Apple and Steve Jobs, so there's a lot of specific events from Apple's history that are, are kind of like that too, where it's, no, we're just gonna reinvent this whole thing. But in order for that to be successful, for people to really grab the new thing and be like, oh yeah, that is better, you do have to have an understanding of what are the specific problems that they're dealing with and the pain points that you're trying to solve before you can say, oh, there's a totally new way to do that. So I guess, you know, I agree with the analogies in terms of helping them grasp a difficult feature, but don't use analogies when describing your thing. <laughs> Be original. There's a, there's a chapter in here about heartbeats and handcuffs. 
which I thought was fascinating. And it's essentially the, the process through which you are communicating to your customers and the general public and the cadence of that and how often to do that, how uh, the process of doing it should happen. And I, I thought he had an interesting comparison. So he's talking a little bit about how Google does it, which is primarily through the annual Google I.O. event versus how Apple does it with three to four events throughout the year because they have so much that they're announcing and they're just kind of keeping you informed about what they're up to. And mm-hmm. how, like, if you're doing it more than once a year, you, you have more opportunities to garner feedback and continually have that conversation with the public. But when you do it once a year, you're kind of cramming it all into one space and people will have a tendency to you know, real a little bit after that. And then you also don't have as much direction overall. So those heartbeats, as he calls them, are very important. And he's got a whole bunch of information around that uh, as well. Was it this section where he was talking about the free stuff? Was that later? I feel like they should be uh, into the business piece. I don't remember. I don't have anything jotted down there for about free stuff. I just that was have jotted one. down that different teams will have different heartbeats. Yes. And um, you should keep your projects small as long as you can. <laughs> the, uh, the, the part that I'm, I'm thinking of, and I think this is maybe the team piece, regardless. I'll get to that one a little bit later. I will bring up the free stuff. Don't let me forget the free stuff. Okay. Anything on product <laughs> before we go to the next one? Uh, I have my one action item comes from this section. And it really has nothing to do with like the things that he was talking about <laughs> most of the book. <laughs> I feel like but, that happens sometimes. Like it gets you thinking about things and it's like, okay, I really want to do this. It's not connected to the book at all, but I want to do this yep. thing way over here. It's sort of connected. The section is 3.4, your first adventure and your second. And he's basically talking about going from your first product that you built to your second product. And he says to analyze why you failed. If you wait for perfection, you'll never finish. But then kind of in the middle of that, he shares this piece of advice about when you start your second adventure, (laughs) you should write a press release about the thing that you're making when you start. And that got me thinking, the reason that you would want to do that is by writing the press release, you are articulating the story behind the product that you are trying to build. And I want to do that for Obsidian University. (laughs) I feel like I... I kind of have a general idea of who I'm trying to help and how I'm going to do that. But I feel like the exercise of writing a succinct press release, which I've never, ever done, that could help me kind of crystallize this and give me something more solid when someone asks, you know, what is this or what do you do? I literally experienced that at the conference I was at. I was going into these, these different Christian businessmen meetings and, um, you know, they're, these are all guys that have these, these big businesses or multiple businesses and, you know, well, what do you do? And it's hard for me to describe it. Like content creator. (laughs) 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 Well, what does that mean? Someone who doesn't live in this space like you and I do. Right. Uh, I got podcasts, YouTube, video courses, stuff like that. And the way that people would compartmentalize me after that is like, oh, you do stuff with social media. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, not, that's not it at all. So I realized like, I got to have something a little bit more, more tangible there. 
So not a content creator, that's the wrong term to use. I make videos and write online. Maybe you have to like spell out what it actually is. Yeah, but even that, like they hear write online and they think social media. And that hmm. is, you know, not a, a correct uh, characterization, but that's not their fault either. And I don't have to explain to these types of people all the time, but I realized that I should have something uh, for that group. Someone who is not listening to Bookworm or listening to Focused or been following what I've done on the suite setup for years, and they come across Mike Schmidt's, you know, who, who are you and what do you do? Obsidian University is the place I want to point people to, most of them anyways. Um, the life theme thing and faith-based productivity is kind of over there on the, the side. But uh, Obsidian University is the main thing right now. And I've got to really nail down, like, what is that? Who does it help and how? I've never really thought about the process of writing a press release beforehand until this. But it's, right. it's a fascinating idea for sure. So let's step into, where are we at? Part four, build your business. And so if you've kind of followed the trajectory here, so build yourself. So this is like internal, build your career. That's where he's like learning the process of having a career, essentially building your product. And now we're building the business. So you're building the business around that team. And there's, there's a few points in here that I, I, at least a couple main points that I wanted to talk through here. One is, one of the chapters is called Marrying for Money. And he, he really gets into venture capital here and how you need to choose your venture capitalist very carefully because they have such a strong and big influence on your company that you're really not going to get away from them. Like, even if you have a disagreement, it doesn't matter. You're stuck. Like, there is mm -hmm. no, like, divorce process, to use that analogy. Uh, in this. So it just doesn't exist. And when you take on that money, you are taking on that relationship. So you have to have, you have to have that nailed. So you have to do that really well. It just made me think through like, you know, you, you hear of so many startups and so many people like doing the VC hunt and trying to raise capital for their project. And it always makes me like squirm a little bit because like mm -hmm. the amount of risk that comes with that is enormous. Like there's so much risk involved with not seeking it out as well, but there's probably the same amount. I have not done this, so I'm speculating. Just as much risk in taking it on as there is to try to do it the hard, like the long hard way. So I, I don't know what my opinion on VC is. <laughs> I just know that it, just kind of scares me a little bit whenever I hear of people doing it or companies doing it, even like brands and products, companies that I support, whenever they mention that they've uh, taken on VC funding, I always get a little bit nervous that they're going to go under because of that. Like they could do well mm. and it could make it grow really well, but the number of times that I've seen them either get bought out, sold, or, you know, raise their price or you know, discount the quality of the product in the process. Like all of that tends to be a thing that can come along for the ride and it just makes me nervous. Sure. So there, there is a little bit of uh, fear, I guess, from my <laughs> side whenever I see that. Well, it's not all bad. Um, I don't have direct experience with it, but my brother is uh, 
fairly involved in in this space. He actually even started a meetup in this area called Digital Fertilizer, which was uh, essentially where people who were making things could be connected with, I'll say venture capitalists, but also like angel investors. Like there's a lot of nuance there. And when most people hear the term venture capital, they think of ruthless cutthroat investors who are just trying to like hostile take over these companies. And that's not how most of the deals go down. Um, but you're right that it is also really risky. <laughs> um, I was in a, a mastermind group at one point with people local in the area. And one of the guys that was in the mastermind group uh, wrote the first line of code at Pandora and okay. has since um, left and is in this thing, uh, like right around where the Packers play Lambeau Field, they have, uh, oh, it's kind of, uh, how do I describe it? It's called Titletown Tech. Uh, and it's basically a bunch of, um, it's not a, a, what do you call it? Accelerator necessarily. But the president of Microsoft is actually from the area. So Microsoft is a big investor and they have a whole bunch of stuff and resources to kind of help technology startup companies in the Northeast Wisconsin area, which is not the place that you typically think of, you know, tech startups and stuff like that. Right. So they're trying to get that, that going in the area. And, um, I don't know, it is, it is kind of cool. Like, uh, I've, I've been to the, the buildings that they they created for this this Teletown Tech and it's a really cool area it's like literally across the street from the the Packers stadium and it i think it's i think it's uh there's a lot of i know a lot of the stories associated with that a lot of companies that you know wouldn't have had the resources that they needed to do the thing and then at that point what do you do pick up and move to Silicon Valley that's not really as important anymore because we live in the age of the internet people can connect from all over the world like you don't have to physically be in the place i don't know so i, I think it's it's kind of cool what they're they're doing there and I, i've seen some of the the success stories but yeah anytime you're gonna take millions of dollars from someone you really need to know who you're taking millions of yes. dollars from yeah yeah for sure and i i don't i don't say my like i don't verbalize my concerns with the intent of saying VC is bad all the time. Like I, I want to make that clear. It's just not a, it, I've just seen it go wrong enough times that it makes me hesitate, I think is the, yeah. but that's, that is very likely a heavily skewed perception as well, because that's the problem with some of the social media world is like, you see things that happen a lot more and the, the real world, occurrence count of those things happening is usually not as high as it seems to be because the number of times that VC funds are transferred and the company has success is very high, but you don't hear those stories super often. Like so many times, mm -hmm. like those are just, it's behind the scenes. It's not even made public at all in many situations. So you don't even you don't even realize how often it's happening. So to say that it goes bad 50% of the time is a gross exaggeration 
just because you don't really know how often that truly happens. Now, it may happen 50% of the times that you're aware of. Like if you were to take the number of success stories that you hear about compared to the number of disastrous stories that you hear about, it might be 50%. But the real world is it's probably, you know, less like it's down in single digit percentages would be my assumption. So well, he, he mentioned that. that 80% 80% of startups fail. So see, it's a lot. And yeah. all you see, you hear the the success stories and that inspires people like, hey, I want to try to do what, what they did. But you got to go into it realizing that this right. is really, really hard and there's a good chance you're going to fail. <laughs> yes. Yes. You get my point though. Yep. Um, the other chapter in this part that I wanted to mention just briefly is called Killing Yourself for Work. And mm-hmm. there, there's a story, there's one story he mentions in here. It's about Steve Jobs being gone for his two week vacations twice a year, and how <laughs> he, they would get more calls and emails and stuff from Steve during those two weeks he was gone on vacation than they would when he was in the office. So they got more like they they didn't get stuff done when he was gone because he was communicating with them so much when he was mm-hmm. quote unquote on vacation, and like that's that is not right obviously, and it's not something he was recommending. Uh, I just thought it was fascinating. I didn't know that about Steve, but it does not surprise me one iota. It's like, yep, that that would make sense. That's not just Steve Jobs. That's uh, a lot of visionary CEOs, I feel. Um, Even if they can control themselves enough not to phone into the office, they're going to come back and, and say this is what we're doing now and take it in a totally different direction. Yeah. And having been on those teams, it does, it still feels like the rugs being yanked, yanked up from underneath you, obviously bigger companies, it takes longer to steer that ship. So you're not like changing directions at the, the drop of a hat, but yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. And <laughs> it kind of bugs me. <laughs> like he's not, he's not holding it up on a pedestal, but he's also kind of, saying that this is how CEOs tend to think they can't disconnect from the the company and I don't want to be that way. <laughs> yeah. So does that mean that I can't be a CEO? I can't run a company? I don't think so. Uh, I think that stigma is kind of being broken down little by little over time, but yeah, very firmly rooted in the the hustle culture, etc. Um, the one thing that I really liked from this section is uh, the detail that Tony Fidel always took notes by hand in yep. meetings. I mean, he's working at Apple for crying out loud, <laughs> all these technology yep. companies, but he always took notes by hand. And I have talked to, to David about this on Focus. Like, I just feel like there's something different about taking notes by hand. I can't even though I have like the books and the remarkable and I'll take notes that way, it feels different because it's not an iPad and I can't really articulate what that difference is, but I feel it. And I feel like Tony Fidel is on my team here. (laughs) Yes. If, if the guy who brought us, you know, the iPod, the iPhone and nest and worked at these major companies, like these major tech companies, like it doesn't get bigger than that. So you know he can afford an iPad. You know that he can afford pretty much anything he wants. And he's still using pen and paper. I would love to know what the pen and paper was, but 
I'm sure it's not a fountain pen. Sorry. I'm sure it's not. It's probably, <laughs> you know, just knowing what I know and who, like the C-level positions I've been around, the people who are in those roles, it's probably like your standard yellow notepad with whatever hotel pen they could, like whatever they had from their bag. Like, <sighs> I see that so often. But hey, people get stuff done. I can't can't diss it. I mean, it gets the true, job done, true. right? So yep. I can't argue. <laughs> I just don't think I could do it. I don't. Nope. <laughs> All right. So the business is built. Let's now build the team that's going to run the business, right? So part five, build your team. Talks about hiring things, some different breakpoints that happen when the organization gets to certain sizes, like how many employees do you have and things change at those different levels. Uh, he talks a lot of, like the process of marketing, why do product managers even exist? Uh, one of the chapters, death of a sales culture. Uh, and then his last <laughs> one in this is lawyer up and the importance of having a lawyer on staff. And this whole section... I feel like this is where you start to get to the point where many people can kind of follow you on like when I'm building my business, what does it need to look like? In this section, you kind of start to cross over of like, okay, how do I put my team together and make sure they are successful? People probably can follow that. But now you're starting to get into like some of the philosophy of sorts. That's probably the wrong term, but you get my idea there is like, it's just, it's something that's higher level where you have to think differently about mm -hmm. the process of building your product and building this thing out, right? So this is where it starts to get to the level where I'm not sure I follow quite at the level that I have previous to this. Now, I've worked in a lot of these situations in corporate from you know just the person doing the widget creation and such, not the ones doing the management and actual running of the business or the team. So... There's some of that back in the back of my mind as well. So I'm not the one who's been doing the hiring. I'm not the one that's had to make these big organizational decisions. I'm aware of that. But it is fascinating to me just to see like the level of detail that you have to process these things mm. in order to do this well, like to build out this team well and know what departments do you need, how do they need to communicate, when does it need to change? When do you need certain departments versus when you don't need them? There's a whole lot here that could take a lot of people a lot of time to process. But I just know that this has been this was a fascinating chapter that I don't know what to do with. <laughs> like in my in my world, like I don't really deal with any of this, but it is really cool to see how someone at Tony's level is is thinking this through. He's kind of thinking it through. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so there's, you know, specific chapters in here that entire books have been written on like a solid hiring process. And there are certain things in here that I think that it's good advice. Um, but also this is kind of where I start to see his bias and his perspective and kind of like the one sidedness of some of the stuff that he's talking about. Um, and I guess just for like context here, when I say he's not really seeing the whole picture regarding like hiring specifically, I'll just call that one out because one of the things that I did at the previous job was I revamped the hiring process, um, because historically the hiring process had not been very successful. And since then I've actually helped other people 
during their hiring process. So I actually even have like a product for this with like the questions that you ask in the interview and like a whole process that you can follow a whole notion board built out. Like I understand this piece of it. And, um, so there's, there's bits and pieces here, you know, little things like he says that everyone starts at hundred percent trust or why are you hiring them? I really like that. That that's true. You can't hire someone you don't trust and then slowly over time, like give them the work that you originally hired them to do. That's kind of anchored in the belief that most of the hires aren't going to work out, which historically speaking, yeah, that's true, but there are better ways to hire that can alleviate some of that stuff. Like one of the things I'll just share this as a, a tidbit. Um, there's this thing called the, the threat of, of reference check that I encourage people to build into. Like when someone books a call for an interview on Calendly, I make this like a required question. The question is, it's a statement initially. It's, it says, as part of our hiring process, we require you to set up a conversation with your, with a previous boss or manager, if asked to do so, would you be willing to arrange this call? And the people who answer yes, they go through and you can do the interviews. But what that does is it injects what Brad smart calls the truth serum, because they know that you may try to verify what they're going to tell you. So they're going to tell you the truth in the interview. The people who say no, then you dig deeper and well, why aren't you going to let me talk to your, your boss or manager? And it's almost like you don't even have to f- follow through on that threat. You just have to have it in, have it at the beginning sure. um, and it changes the interaction. And a lot of people think like, well, at the interview, you really just got to have like these super secret, awesome questions. And that's going to provide the clarity. No, <laughs> you just need to have different things along the way that are going to help you see things for what they really are. Uh, Keith Cunningham, the author of the road, less stupid says something along the lines of, I don't need to make more smart decisions. I need to make less dumb decisions. I need to quit swinging at bad pitches. That's what hire <laughs> like a bad hire. That's what it is. It's right. swinging at a bad pitch. Right. And there's so much cost associated with the, the process. Like you train the person, you get them, get them ramped up, they're ready to do the work and then they leave or they flame out or, you know, there's, it, there's so much that, that goes into that. So I don't know, like this is the the part of the, the book where I started to feel like, okay, Tony, you and I could have like a, a actual intellectual conversation here <laughs> and you could teach me some things and I could teach you some things. <laughs> but yeah, the death of the sales culture part also, I like that. Um, again, there, there's bias here and I don't have like a solution for, for this one necessarily, but you can see how most people view like, well, sales, just get the sales, get the sales. And I've seen that perspective too. It's like, well, we just need more on the, the input. So just whatever they got to do, like go ahead, sales guys, you have as many resources as you want, like do whatever the heck you want, just get the sales. And that's short-sighted because it doesn't take a new account that really every sale involves all the different people on the the team. And I like his suggestion about not paying out those commissions. As soon as the sale comes in, the customer should have to, that should have to maintain a relationship and customer service should be involved. Like you want all these teams to be aligned. You want everybody pulling in the, the same direction. And it's just kind of shocking to me how a lot of 
bigger businesses and organizations, they get compartmentalized and they have these two different teams that are fighting against each other all the time because their incentives are so misaligned. It just, it drives me nuts. The last chapter in this part is lawyer up and he tells the story of the nest cam. So the Mm -hmm. camera that they put together and how it was designed to be something that could be put in your home to keep an eye on pets as a baby monitor, uh, anything in that territory. The problem was that it required, because it was uh, possible to for people to put this in the room with a baby, they had to have this required uh, governmental, uh, what, was the, what was the term for it? It's a disclaimer that goes on the cord that there's possible strangulation because there's a cable in the same room with a baby. And it has this picture of a kid being strangled with the cord. (laughs) And Tony was just livid and did not want that on his product. And the lawyer is like, this is a regulation. Like, you're not going to get around this. But Mm. his point was like, the lawyers are the ones there to protect you. And they are not the enemy as much as many people like to say that the lawyers are the problem. They are not. (laughs) They are protecting you. But I thought it was fascinating that, you know, his lawyer... Uh, managed to help him through the process. They ended up making it bigger and a little bit more obnoxious. But what they also did was made it very easy to remove. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like they had to ship it with it on it, but they made it very easy to extract it from the cable without leaving the sticky residue that is on the cable that I hate whenever I take these tags off because everybody does this. And they don't want it there, so they're going to take it off. So if you just make it easy, everybody's happier. So they have to have this thing there, but the lawyer helped him figure out a way to get around it somewhat. So I just thought that was a fascinating story. Yeah, me too. All right, part six, be CEO. And this is how do you manage the running of a company? And he talks about different types of CEOs. Uh, One thing I thought was fascinating, he mentions that... What was the number? 12% of CEOs exhibit some psychopath traits. Like, <laughs> I, I missed I, that statistic. <laughs> I saw that number. As, I want to say it was 12, It was above 10%, I know. And I saw that, like, huh, well, that's fascinating. So, yes, CEOs. Uh, he talks about board of directors different types of boards, like in different boards, dictatorial boards, inexperienced boards. So he does talk about different types of board of directors. I'm curious your thoughts on that one when we get there. But he also works through how to buy other companies and how to be bought because he has obviously worked through both of those situations. Uh, Mm -hmm. He has a chapter called F Massages, I'll come back to that one because that's that free thing that I was talking about earlier. But then he also gets into, he gets into the unbecoming of a CEO. Uh, But before I get into like the free thing that I have been like itching to talk about for some weird reason, tell me about the board. (laughs) Because I know you have some thoughts on this board and this particular chapter you said like changed your view on this from your action item that we were talking about in the follow-up section. Well, I guess I haven't been a part of many boards. (laughs) So I don't know exactly what they look like. (laughs) Sure. But uh, he mentions this chapter is kind of specific advice for as a CEO dealing with a board. 
Um, and he gives some examples of the type of people that you would want on the board. The big thing is that you want people who are going to be mentors on the board. And then um, as a CEO, that there should only be good surprises in the board meetings. He talks about, he had a story here about Steve Jobs and the way that he dealt with boards. And it sounds like as great as Steve Jobs was at the keynote presentations, he was probably even better in board meetings. (laughs) (laughs) So I can totally see that where, um, with Steve Jobs specifically, the story that he shared is like these people on the board are like starting to gain momentum around, well, you could do this and you could do that. And Steve just like real calmly is like, those are great ideas, but we don't have time to talk about those today. So let's move on to the next thing. And I could, I've been in those situations. It's like, okay, this is going off the rails. How do we bring this back? I cannot think of a better person for that than Steve Jobs. And if he's right. doing it nicely, like Tony Fidel is talking about, because he has to, these are the, the board of directors. Like they can fire him if he's a complete jerk. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I feel like it would have been cool to be a fly on that wall. Um, but the other thing that I, uh, I that stood out to me from from this section is the buying and being bought. Not because I'm in a place to sell a company or buy a company, but he shares a lot of the stories about Nest being bought by Google and the difficulty of merging the cultures. And culture is a thing that I love. (laughs) Uh, And I feel like this is one of the things that I am best at uh, when it comes to my previous role as as an integrator and like the family core values and the life theme stuff. Essentially, that is like culture building type stuff. And so when he's explaining how how when he was at Apple, he had Steve Jobs in his back pocket whenever there was a team that wasn't giving him what they wanted. He'd call Steve and Steve would yell at the people and they would get he would get what he wants. He even mentions that like he tried to quit Apple a couple of times and Steve got involved. (laughs) He's like, no, no, you'll get the promotion. (laughs) So now Steve's no longer there, different CEO, Google does things a different way and it's just complete friction and they're, they're butting heads all the time. But I feel like the scenario that he's describing doesn't have to be the default. Like there are ways to do this, but the bigger issue is just identifying the culture at the company that you have. He doesn't really talk about like core values and how they live those out and things like that. I mean, he's going to talk a little bit about the F massages and the perks versus benefits, I'm I'm sure. But I feel like this is something that I see in a lot of these like startup companies where they have all this money and they're really just trying to like get some traction and, and get off the ground before they run out of money is like no one really takes the time to define who are we. Why are we here? How do we do the things that we do? It's all just like, oh, let's get together and build something fun and have fun in the process, which is why you've got the ping pong tables and the massages and the the big cafes with all the the meals and things like that. He kind of talks through like his frustration with that. And I kind of feel like, well, you shouldn't be surprised (laughs) by that if you never really codified it. You know, then when something, if you don't codify it, you can tell when something feels wrong, but you really have nothing to fall back on. I feel like if they had had that stuff, and and this is totally me projecting at this point, what do I know? But I feel like if he had that stuff codified the way that 
I would tell companies to codify it, that can very easily be brought into the acquisition discussion. Be like, this is who we are. This is the way that we do things. So these things that you do seem to be in, in, in conflict with this. How are we going to resolve it? And then you can avoid some of the missteps, like the the tweeted message about how they they uh, respect people's privacy and and screw ads, you know. And Google's like <laughs> the ads are the thing that pay for everything. So I feel like he's he's being vulnerable and he's sharing these cool stories, and he's not saying that I've got it all figured out. So I'll, I appreciate that, but I feel like some of those missteps that he's sharing, like those were avoidable. Um, if you really have taken the time to dial in some of the culture stuff. Yeah, and that mismatch of cultures, like the the primary example of that is when Nest was bought and his Nest team was being incorporated into Google. But Google had has, I think they still have, a lot of this view that you can get free products at Christmas and you get free snacks and they have like this whole thing around you or to have snacks within 200 feet of your workstation at all times. Like you have to have <laughs> yep. freely available food within 200 feet at all times. And all of this free stuff and all of these free perks like the massages and the ping pong tables and pool tables and you name it, uh, it, it all creates an entitlement amongst the employees and they end up focusing more on all the perks than they do on the job. And mm-hmm. that gets to be part of the issue. Even like he mentions how Steve Job was very much against this and how he would not, like he would give you a discounts on Apple products, but he would never give them away for free. And the reason for that was because he didn't want his employees to devalue the, the exact item that they were working to build. He wanted mm-hmm. them to hold it in high regard. So they didn't give it away for free. And that I I can totally get behind that concept because the number of times like whenever something is given away for free, well, it is effectively going to become worthless because it gives it's given away for free. So I, I get that and I, I understand like the the draw that people have towards companies like Google who give away all this stuff. And 20% of their time is for your own free projects and such. Because he even fought that one, Tony did, because his Nest team wanted to take that on. It's like, we can go work on these other things. We don't have to work on the Nest thing as much. He's like, but we're in a startup type phase. It's like, we're trying to get things cranked out. We can't deviate from our project. But they had that mismatch of the Nest employees were seeing the culture of Google and wanted some of that. Who wouldn't, right? I, I can't fault the employees for that, but because of that culture mismatch, it created a lot of tension that Tony had to deal with, which is a big part of why he ended up leaving. And that takes you into the last chapter here before we get to the conclusion, unbecoming CEO. Basically, when is it time to step away as CEO? When is it time to go off and become like an advisor and a consultant to other companies or sit on a board versus... <laughs> being the one who's actually in charge. So that that is a another like, huh, when do you make that call? And it was interesting, like as I was reading through some of those, like, yeah, I can think of a couple of CEOs that I've heard stories about that should probably unbecome a CEO. Like that that would be good for them to step down. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it it's a fascinating section, I thought. 
Yeah. Uh, I don't know what it's like to unbecome a CEO, but I can totally empathize with the scenarios that he's describing there where being a CEO is not a lifetime appointment. And another interesting point from that chapter, I feel is like you can have multiple CEOs, but you only have one founder or multiple founders, I guess, but the people who started the company will always be the founders Mm -hmm. and, uh, you're never going to be able to replace them. (laughs) Right. Uh, so if you are a CEO and you're considering joining a company, I guess, I don't know, like there's only so much you can do. I feel like there's a little bit of a parallel here with choosing someone to marry, recognizing that you're not going to change them after the fact, <laughs> going into it with, uh, with your eyes open, essentially. Um, if you see things in the founder that are causing you to have concerns about taking a, a, a higher level position with that company, just recognize that the, to borrow a quote from Ed Cole, the characteristics of the kingdom emanate from the character of the king. And the founder is the king, not you as the CEO. <laughs> yes. So true. Which brings us to the conclusion, which he titles Beyond Yourself. And it's a fairly concise summary uh, of what he's been through, but there was a process here that he walks through that kind of explains the why behind the building process. And it it could probably, this, this would be using mostly my words, but it summarizes in the phrase of helping other people, which is something mm-hmm. I know that we have talked about time and time again here on the show, but helping other people. And if your product, your business, your team, your career, and yourself, you as CEO, like if none of that is helping other people, then you're on a worthless endeavor. <laughs> like that I yep. thought was fascinating. It's like, okay, makes sense. It has to be beyond me. It's not all about me. It's about how I'm helping others. So I love that that was kind of his summarization of the book. Yeah, I like that too. And a couple other things I liked from this are things that I jotted down. Everything you make counts. So from a perspective of building a product, you may build a product and it's a complete flop, but don't view that as time wasted. Um, And then on page 375, he says that the thing holding most people back is themselves. Too true, Tony, too true. (laughs) Uh, And then the last thing, which I thought was good advice was don't stop at the finish line. And this kind of harkens back to goals But when you view building a product as the goal, you can ship it and then feel like there, now I can breathe. But then you just discover what the next thing that you need to do is. So I feel like what's unsaid in that one single line is that this is a marathon, not a sprint. Um, And really the point is that you have to keep going. You have to go further than you thought you would have to probably work harder than you thought you would have to. So don't kill yourself to cross that finish line. Just recognize that that finish line is kind of a milestone, but there's more race to be run once you get past that, that point, very generalizable advice, I think for, for anybody and uh, good advice, great way to end the book. 
Well, I guess that brings us to action items. I am very lame in this case and have none because I'm not building a product. That was my justification <laughs> as I was going through. It's like, I'm not really building this. But I, at the same time, it's like it's, it's some really interesting information to have when you're, when you're going through the process of like learning. And as he starts off with building yourself, maybe that's where I'm at in this process, building the career side of it, maybe. So maybe it's just the point I'm just not in that space. Maybe it's just I'm not in the right mindset for it. But I didn't have any actual action items for this one. I know you've got the one. Yeah, going to write the press release for Obsidian University. Um, if you want to write one for relaunching the Bookworm Club, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose that's possible. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I don't think there's a lot uh, to be actioned in this book. It's uh, not just a story and it's not just a conceptual thing, but there really isn't any, like, if you're in this situation, you need to do this now. It's very conceptual, I guess, instead of tactical. Um, He's not saying do these things. It's more keep these things in mind when you are in this stage of the journey. Yes. Well, I guess uh, style and rating. I get to go first on this one. The style of this book is very well, like it's very well put together. Something about Shane Parrish breaking us into the 1.1, 2.3, 3.1, 3.2, 3, all those things are, uh, I th- for some reason that kind of grew on me this time. I don't know why that is. Maybe that's the developer in me coming out and it reminds me of version control. I don't know what it is. But there is that, component that I really liked this time around. I don't know why. Uh, But the way that he has the structure of this, the parts leading through each into the next, I think was very well put together. I think he has the structure of this absolutely spot on. I love that it's not a three-part book because it takes more than three parts to do all of this building. And I do love that at the end, he's even walking you through the process of stepping away from what you have built and why you're building things. So he has gone through the entire trajectory here of starting with himself and consequently ourselves all the way up to becoming the CEO of a major business and then stepping away from it. So the fact that he's gone through that entire process, I can absolutely give him big kudos to that. Uh, As far as a rating goes, like there's, I think, limited applicability here maybe not as much as i think there is there's obviously a lot that everybody can learn from hearing his story and hearing about this process and this uh you know to use his term unorthodox way of making things so you can certainly learn a lot here and if you are in the space of wanting to build products like physical products for people to use i would say this is an absolute no-brainer you should read this if you're somebody who's building like soft products, like software or content and such, I think there's still a lot of value here and you can learn the process of building out a business and team to help you do that. There's a lot that you can learn here as well. But if you're not somebody who wants to lead or run something like that, and you're, you know, I, I'm thinking of a couple of friends who are like electricians, like they don't want to run a business. They just want to work for another company and be an electrician. And they do very well doing that. Like they're not in the business 
of running another business. Like they don't want to do that. So I think there's probably limited scope in that perspective. At the same time, you could still glean some bits of value from it for sure. So for a rating, I think because of some of that limited audience that comes with it, uh, I think I'm going to put it at 4.0. I love the book, but I, I just don't think it quite has the reach and has the applicability that I would love it to have. Uh, so because of that, I'm going to put it at 4.0. All right. Well, I will agree with you on the 4.0. Uh, I think this is a, a really fun book, a really good book to read. If I had to compare this to something, it's probably close to something like Creativity Inc., where it is a lot of personal story that provides the value, but it's not just the, the story. There are principles to be gleaned from this, uh, from this book. Um, I stand by my criticism of the chapter points in clear thinking. <laughs> this one, it does make more sense in this book. I would say this book is, I don't have a word count for this versus Shane's, but Shane's read pretty fast. This one has got to be almost twice as long with the same number of parts. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and almost probably the same number of points. So, and he is a product engineer, so it makes total sense. Now, maybe Shane has a development background. I, I don't know. I just still think it felt a little bit weird and clear thinking, but we both rated it 5.0. It really had nothing to do with what we got out of the book. Right. For sure. <laughs> it was funny, however, that the very next book also has these point chapters. <laughs> For the record, I did not know it had that when I picked it. So there's that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think this is a, a really good book. I think it's better than I thought it was going to be. I think if it would have taken the Creativity Inc. approach and just stuck to the story, it would have been harder to relate to and I would not have enjoyed it as much. Tony really does a phenomenal job, I feel, with this format. And uh, I don't know if he's writing this as like a guide for people who are involved with startups or not. I mean, it kind of sounds like that's his mission with the build creative is like, this is the world that he's in and he wants to give more than he takes. And that's great. I don't think he wrote it for people like you and me necessarily, but I do think that people who listen to bookworm will probably get a, a lot out of it. Uh, I think it's a, a worthwhile read and I feel like, um, what you get from reading this is a very good picture of who Tony Fidel is. You get, you understand his personality, uh, but not in a way where like, I think there's a temptation if you are going to write these types of books where you don't share, uh, your flaws. And it, th what that does is it makes it feel real hard to relate to. I felt like I could relate to Tony. I feel like he did a, a great job there. He also uh, talked about Steve Jobs in a way that I'd never heard people talk about Steve Jobs before, because when people talk about Steve Jobs, they typically do one of two things. Either he was an amazing visionary and this incredible CEO who saw more than anybody else did and everyone else who just got in his way and he got mad, like tough, like you just didn't have the vision. Or people who are like, this guy was such a psychopathic jerk that no one should have ever worked with him. <laughs> I feel like he does a great job being like, Steve was a really brilliant guy. But there were these a uh, couple times, you know, when he did some things that maybe he shouldn't have done. But he's not like coming down on him either. Like, look at, yeah, that was absolutely wrong. And he's such a jerk. 
I feel like Tony's a really nice guy and he'd be willing to give you the benefit of the doubt <laughs> most yeah. of the time uh, until you push him too far. You ask him to do something that like, no, that's absolutely, uh, I'm not going to do that. I mean, you can tell kind of by the, some of the language he uses that there are, there are lines that he's going to draw certain places, but I don't know. I, I feel like whenever I have read books about the startup or computer industry, I feel like there, I usually walk away from those feeling like there's nobody in that world that I can relate to. And I don't belong there. I don't, I, I don't want to set foot there, but Tony's, uh, this book, I, I feel like some of the stories that he shares, like there are good people there. And obviously, you know, that if you, you think about it, but I don't know, I feel like this could very easily have been a very exclusive book. And it's not, I don't know how exactly he did that, but, um, that makes me say, yeah, I would recommend this and I will also give it four stars. Cool. Cool. All right. Time to put it on the shelf. What's next, Mike? Next is hidden potential by Adam Grant. Uh, we have read an Adam Grant book before, but I'm blanking on the, Think the again. name. Was it think again? Yeah. Okay. And, uh, I really enjoyed that one. So uh, I'm excited that he's got a new one coming out and uh, timing, you know, it just came out. So I'm going to drag you through that one with me. Yeah, I had mine. uh, Mine showed up on a day when it was raining and Amazon was brilliant and put it underneath a downspout at my house. (laughs) The Uh box was completely soaked. The book was in terrible shape. So (laughs) they replaced it, thankfully. But I was like, hmm got a brand new book that was on pre-order and it was destroyed before I even knew it was delivered. So great fun. Anyway, I have it now, but I got a new one. So it's in good shape. Uh, Following Hidden Potential, uh, we're going to go through Who Not How. This is by Dan Sullivan and Benjamin Hardy. Uh, This was a recommendation on the Bookworm Club by Mark Levison. So thanks, Mark, for the recommendation. Uh, So if we don't like this one, Mark is the one we're going to go after. It's not going to be my (laughs) fault. So I I have a scapegoat. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate that. Uh, right. How about Gap Books? I have none this time because, you know, somebody decided yeah. to pick a 400-page book. I'm not sure who that was. But who does that? I don't know who does that, <laughs> but they did do it. Well, I do. I started uh, This is Personal by Brennan Dunn before I picked up Build, and I'm about halfway through it. It's really good, so I intend to go back and, and finish that one. And I've got a big list of of uh, gap books after that. So I definitely want to finish this one so I can grab one of those, those other gap books. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening. If you are reading along with us, pick up hidden potential by Adam Grant, and we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks.